0: If there's one thing that always seems to be a little different, but also fairly similar, it's how data engineers become, well, data engineers. I had the chance to chat with Sean and Sheil Chotzi about Sheil's path to data engineering, the fine art of data hoarding, and how that impacts the interplay between different members of data teams in this episode of Data Aware, a podcast about all things data engineering. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Data Aware Podcast. I am joined once again by Sean Knapp. Hey, Sean, how's it going? It's going great. Hey, everybody. Good, good, good. We are super excited, which you will hear me say a lot because I get very excited actually about all of these episodes, but today is very exciting because we have our own Shiel Choksi, who's one of our solutions architects here at Ascend, on the line to talk with us a little bit about his quite an interesting history in data engineering and as actually a user of a sense of somebody who has been doing the work that we're talking about. Um, so we have Sheil on the line to chat with us today. Hey, Sheel, how's it going with you?
1: Hey, Leslie. Yeah, it's going great. I'm getting ready for the uh, holidays. And uh, hey, Sean, good to see you. Hey,
0: Sheil. Awesome. So I just gave a very high level and not the most in-depth or probably descriptive <laughs> overview of kind of your history and your background. I just... We always love chatting with Sheil because S.H.I.E.L. actually came to us from being a customer. So, Sheil, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, both at Maven, kind of what got you into the data engineering space, and and just kind of what your history is. That's not a broad question at all, but, you know, we'll just go with it.
1: I think I can make it work. Um, I'll try not to go back to uh, childhood memories, but uh, let's see. As far as... uh, (laughs) My history of it goes is, you know, started in the software engineering space and uh, actually started at a company called uh, Pivotal Labs, which is a software consultancy, a lot of startups as well as enterprises. And it was just a great opportunity to work with uh, just awesome people uh, on anything from front end, back end systems. We had a product, uh, Cloud Foundry. So, working on uh, this was even before some of the Docker days, working on kernel level containerization uh, to run people's code on Cloud Foundry. And so, really got a chance to work on a gamut of things uh, over the years. And that's actually how I got introduced to Maven, which was a startup and kind of wanted to take the plunge for myself and see what it was like to work in a startup. And uh, as I'm sure you all have heard before, the startup is always the variety of experiences, often more even related just to technology, (laughs) where you're still also trying to figure out like, hey, how do I get internet into this office for everybody to use? It's like, well, that's not really going to be software engineering, but someone's got to figure it out and
0: (laughs) you're just going to get it done. You
1: wear the many hats. Wear many hats. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, in going through the startup experience of joining early and um, building out teams, uh, some of the teams that I built out were first uh, software engineering and then product and then finally data analytics. That's actually, I started getting closer into the data engineering space, not through a, you know, intentional job change of, you know, I want to be a data engineer, but more, okay software teams have a lot of data that they're working with and are generating, you know, clickstream type tracking, uh, relational stores and orders and users and things like this. And the data and analytics teams are trying to use that um, data and unlock insights. And so it turns out the the bridge there is data engineering.
0: I don't want to say you fell into it, but you kind of fell into it a little bit is what it sounds like. So what made you decide, I want to continue doing this instead of like run away screaming with your hair on fire?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it might partly come from, you know, in, at Maven, we were primarily working in this programming language called Clojure, which, you know, it's a little bit more of a niche language, but uh, one of the things that Closure really talks about is, you know, all your code is data, all your data is code. And really the, the point of that sentiment is saying that the more that we can bring down into the data layer. Um, even in a, in a programming language sense, the more flexibility we have, we have, the more structure that there is, the more isomorphic, let's say, um, that everything can become. And when you start thinking about that way, a lot of things start looking like data problems and rules engines and, you know, how can we abstract away what we're really writing in this imperative thing into more of a code base slash data engine. And so when you start doing that for eh, let's say five or six years, everything does really start looking like a data problem. You're like, oh, we need to sync CRM profiles to this email system. That's basically just a data problem. <laughs> or, hey, we need to compute order totals on um, orders. You know, yes, it's like a bunch of imperative code to tax this all up and you know add tax and shipping and figure that all out. But also it is kind of just a data problem of you know what we're working on and how these all get applied on each other. So after so long kind of doing that, it was kind of like, well, the data layer is so foundational here and there's so much you can do with it. Working with these tools that are optimized for data, not just Mm -hmm. the the small amounts you might be dealing with in code or, you know, figuring out an order total, but working with these bigger sets of data, like in the big data space and in data engineering and and working with tools that are optimized for this, like Spark and Athena to query it or um, whatever your stack might look like, just felt like a place that I wanted to spend my time on and focus.
0: It's interesting that you say everything is a data problem, because I think it's something that I've seen a lot in my history. I'm certain Sean's seen a lot of it in his history, considering, you know, what we're all doing these days. Talk to me a little bit about, because you, again, you kind of came into it, I think the way that probably a lot of data engineers have come into it, which is from sort of the software engineering side, and then had to kind of fall into it because everything kind of is a data problem at some point. So how have you seen the industry shift in the last few years or what have been some of the more interesting shifts in the industry that you have seen that have either made you like scratch your head or made you go, okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I can see why we're moving in that direction.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I equated a lot to the experience uh, back in earlier days of Cloud migration, really. You know, when we were first standing up EC2 instances, you know, there wasn't even much to be said about VPCs. The most you would do is an IP whitelist, let's say. But what was starting to become very clear at that point was, even just with S3 and being able to store things, it got so much easier to just hang on to things. And I just look at that and and look at you know, ten years past that, where even companies of relatively moderate size are now sitting on just troves of things that they've just stored because it's been so easy. Uh, and I like to think of like, we've all become kind of data hoarders where we're just kind of like, oh, just put it in S3, which is fantastic. Or I say S3, but you know, similarly, Azure Blob Store, Google Cloud Storage, similar, et cetera. But it's so s- scalable. It's so easy to just hang on to it. And so I've seen that trend definitely increase where you even look at some startups these days and you're you meet them and they're like, oh yeah, we collect 10 terabytes of data a day. And you're like, oh, Okay, between three engineers, cool. Like that's pretty awesome. And that part has become really easy. But then when you look at these industry trends of, well, then what, you know, what do you do with that? You know, are you processing it? Are you trying to load it to a warehouse? Are you trying to derive value from it? Is it part of your product? That's where all these challenges are still. And and we haven't really seen that part be really easy. You know, when you talk to this three-person startup who's collecting 10 terabytes a day, you're like, then what? And they're like, yeah, then what? You know, like we try to query it with Athena. You know, these response times are kind of slow. We try to wrangle it. Schema change is hard. You know, we're trying to hire data engineers. Turns out there's not a lot of data engineers compared to more generalist software engineers. Maybe they're messing around with Airflow and Spark. And it's just not like, it's just not nearly as easy as it was to actually collect all of that data.
2: It's actually really interesting because, you know, one of the things that, that you're touching on, Sheila, is, you know, something we've talked about in the past too, which is, you know, a, a lot of the foundational problems have or are currently being solved. For example, like how do you store insane amounts of, of data, right? And in many ways, you know, we're also now seeing a lot of people who are are solving that problem. How do you process insane amounts of data, right? Whether it's with Spark or, or Kafka or, or, or you name it. But then it becomes this question of like, what next? Uh, and, and what do you do with it, right? And, you know, one of these you, you touched on were, or, or was that notion that a lot of people have software engineers, but they may not have a bunch of, of data engineers, right? There's still a lot more software engineers out there than there are data engineers. And we oftentimes find people coming into the data engineering space from a few different uh, directions, right? Some coming in from the software engineering space, some coming in from the infrastructure uh, space, and, and some actually coming in from you know, the, the data science or data analytics space how would you describe the differences of, you know, some of the perspective, the worldview that, that those different folks have? And what are the, the sort of strengths that they can bring into that? And, you know, even against both the backdrop that, that you had at, at Maven, where you guys, I think had a really strong software engineering, DNA, um, and maybe perhaps some of the others too, We I, I don't think interacted as much there at those levels. But then also what you're seeing from all the customers that you work with at Ascend, And where are those centers of gravity and where where are the strengths that people can really play to 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 make the most of their their data engineering investments?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, starting with maybe some of the uh, personas that you described, if you will. So folks who have strong software engineering backgrounds and are, you know, helping to build these pipelines or working now as data engineers. Versus data engineers who've now specialized in this area, however they've done that. Uh, versus also data analysts and data scientists who are getting into this. So starting with the software engineers, which of course is uh, most key to my my heart and my my background, you know the the skill set there is absolutely, you know learning new frameworks, paradigms, languages, all of this stuff comes fairly easy, I think. You know, you, you, you work between different languages and different frameworks all the time, you know, if, with some examples, some good documentation, um, you're gonna kind of figure out what you need to figure out and kind of build it and move on. And what I've noticed with these groups is that for a lot of businesses, software engineers are often ported around into different projects or areas, depending on what makes sense. And so a lot of times when it comes to these data engineering pipelines, Software engineers are called in when the complexity has increased past what their uh, current skill set of the team is. Maybe it's a a lot of data analysts working on a warehouse or something like this. It's like, okay, we need more pipelines. We need to do more. Maybe the software engineers can help with this. You know, they're fairly um, chameleons, can jump into any situation. Uh, So they come with that really strong skill set and mostly want to get the job done and done right. Um, So they want to build something robust that will run on its own using whatever is the right language for the job, the right frameworks for the job. And then, you know, ideally keep it to a lower maintenance, fairly automated and a fairly uh, great pipeline. So I think that's what we see is a lot of the priorities of those folks. Um, Sean, you work with a lot of software engineers as well. Like uh, does that sound kind of like what you've been seeing as well or?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think the, you know, we definitely see with a, a lot of the software engineering teams, Uh, Oftentimes they're they're dropping in and trying to create something that is super low maintenance, super high automation factor. You know, I I think actually, you know, Sheila, you and I were even on a call yesterday um, with somebody who was talking about a pattern that we oftentimes see, which is, you know, you have a a data science team that's sort of thinking, you know, if you think tail end of the data lifecycle, working their way back upstream and a data engineering team or a software engineering team, as it may be working their way from the the top end of the data lifecycle kind of flowing down and part of the challenge was getting them to to meet in the middle and I think we see this a bunch and and probably worthwhile even kind of digging in a bit on that is like there's a lot of software engineering teams who are trying to build product that is uh, low maintenance burden high leverage but one of the big shifts that we also are seeing is they're trying to do that where then the data science data analytics uh, team can actually self-serve on top of that and and trying to get to meet all the way in the middle becomes hard, right? Because you're not going to necessarily get a bunch of those other teams that the data science team to still go write really complex things uh, with a ton of code on top of a platform that the engineering team necessarily builds because some of those tools are still pretty raw. And so like, what, what have you seen, you know, what did you all try at, uh, at Maven? What do you see a lot of our, our customers and, and frankly, just other people out in the industry, doing outside of Ascend that they're trying to make stuff work and, and, and how that
1: play out? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think kind of what you're highlighting there is the uh, handoff points almost where one yeah. team is trying to create an interface that the other team can pick up on. You want that interface to be fairly open so that the other team can do a, a good amount of self-service um, without having to keep coming back to the prior team, but tight enough such that you know they can deliver something consistent without having to constantly keep changing it. And so that, that handoff point was always critical for us. I mean, even thinking back to the Maven period, to put it in some kind of architecture terms, almost everything in actually part of the software engineering built systems was a series of microservices coordinated by Kafka, as we see uh, a lot of that today. But that wasn't necessarily where the data science and data analyst teams wanted to pick up, right? They wanted to pick up with files that were already persisted, so they didn't have to worry about Kafka and reading in time before the Kafka persistence stream is uh, expired. They wanted to have enough flexibility to say how they wanted to build their data model and not have to keep going back to the engineering team every time they wanted some tweak of the data model. And so that handoff point is really what, what crafted this interface for us, where We wanted the data to be persisted, ready to be picked up in S3 or call it a data lake if you'd like, but relatively low level of transformation so that, you know, if they wanted a convenience field for the user type, for example, which is an amalgamation of like three different columns combined together, have a platform such that the data analyst and data science team could create that definition from the raw data that was handed off. And so that was kind of how we designed that interface. And I think this is, you know, as we're talking with other folks at Ascend who are interested in the platform, have a similar sentiment where they're at a various stage there. Maybe they're still trying to define the interface and the handoff point, you know, what team is responsible for what part of it, and then what team is responsible for the other part. Maybe they're trying to design it, or they have an interface that they're trying to Move a little bit, you know. Maybe it's a little too restrictive because maybe, you know, everything comes back as a a ticket back to the data engineering team or the software engineering team, and they're like, okay, maybe we need to move this interface a little bit upstream, make it a little bit more flexible. And so, you know, I think depending on where folks are, it's either defining or moving that interface. But I don't think we found a lot of folks who are like, yes, this is it. This is this is the perfect one. And and maybe there never will be. But um, I think folks are just calibrating and finding it um, so that their teams can the ultimate objective, move faster and, yeah. and and do stuff with this data. It's not just about moving it. It's about like actually, you know, either doing data science on it or uh, business logic and coming up with analytics, uh, actually trying to get to that end goal.
0: So it's interesting. I'll jump in real quick. It's interesting, you know, talking about Maven being mostly Kafka data and the whole idea of that's not, you know, the data scientists don't necessarily care about streamings you know, in a previous life, as I've said before on the podcast the company, I worked with worked with streaming data. And that was great. And we had a lot of data analysts and data scientists who came to us and they were said, I, we want access to all the data that we have. I don't really care where it comes from. I don't really care what it is. I don't really care. Like, I don't know whether we have Kafka data or if we have data sitting in Spark, or if we have, like, if it's in a where, like, I don't know where the data sits. I don't care where it sits. I just want the access to it and need the access to it the way that I need the access to it. And then on the flip side, we talked to the data engineering teams. Here we go. I can't even get my spark pipelines built. I can't, I don't know what you want me. Like there's no way I'm looking at, you know, K streams or Flink or any of that stuff right now, because I can't even get the spark based pipelines out to the people that need them and that data out to the people that need them. And it's, you know, timely fashion where there are companies out there that are built on streaming data. They probably have data engineering teams of 30, 40 plus people. I mean, these are huge companies have massive data engineering teams, but for, I think the average company out there, it is no matter what kind of data you have coming in, it can be coming in in a streaming fashion. It became, can be coming in on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a whatever basis, I think it's still the age-old question of just like how do you connect the dots? How do you connect the data to the people who need it?
2: Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And I think the, you know, we see this a lot where, you know, people love to the I think talk about the, you know, bash versus streaming and is one going to don, like, is there one to rule them all? Right. <laughs> just like, yeah, just like we see this ETO versus ELT, right? And the reality is that the world is complex, right? Companies are complex, their needs, their, their people, or the products they're trying to build are complex, uh, which is great because the complexity generally carries with it a fantastic amount of job security for all of us in this industry <laughs> that I'm sure we're, we're very excited about and, and appreciative of. But we oftentimes see different things really kind of catch a, a ton of momentum and the pendulum starts to swing, right? You know, and, and, and Gartner has their fantastic hype cycle that's associated with this, where, you know, you see everybody sort of moving forward on like, oh, we're all in on streaming, we're all in on ETL or EOT. And, and, and gosh, you know, like we, we find over time, that there's just this balance, you know, where, you know, we even did this back at uh, Uyala, the, the, the last company I was the founder and CTO of, You know, we were really early in with, uh, actually even before Spark and Spark streaming with Storm, which is an open source uh, technology that came out of Twitter. Yep. And so we started doing uh, real time uh, analytics dashboards for our customers. Uh, We powered online uh, video distribution. And so the demo was you pop up a player and literally can start to see, you know, within a second, the incremental tick marks of how many people are watching and viewing your content. And it was like the coolest, sizzle sexy thing ever where like you go in demos and people were really excited about it and we went through this huge product initiative of what if we moved our entire analytics product which is a huge big powerful complex analytics product all to real time like what would that take and what would our customers do so we did this huge amount of research with customers and basically it was the what questions are you trying to answer with data what Mm -hmm. things activities are you trying to automate with data. And what we found was there was still a very small component of what they were trying to do that needed and actually necessitated real-time data as many of the things they were going to do had a human in the loop, right? It was, oh, I am going to go like publish a different piece of content or invest more in this strategy that as a result, that, that, the latency was so high that the need around real-time data and, and actually was less than the desire for deep levels of historical data for more complex analysis. Yeah, um, And that doesn't take away from the the, the need for streaming. It just means you kind of need both. And so as we get excited about one pattern or the other, I, I think you need both. I mean, totally. we even see this, you know, Shil, you you talked about this where you hit on the, like a lot of people right now are like they'll grab all their data and they'll put it in, you know, collect in that data lake and try and run, Athena on top of it. Or we see a lot of the EOT of like, I'm gonna collect a bunch of that data and put it in my data warehouse. And then I'll do uh, ad hoc queries and even create reports on top of it. And a lot of this is because folks are, are trying to get away from that ETL paradigm and the big data pipeline because the, the data engineering part is hard, right? Yet at, at some point we we always see folks are, are trying to, to optimize. They're like, ah, this is really slow or it's really expensive or hey, the infrastructure team is asking us if we can stop redlining our Redshift or Snowflake cluster so much because we're running the same queries over and over and over again, et cetera. And, and so you find over time, people try and find that balance. And, and so I guess, you know, one thing I sure I'm kind of curious because like, you spent so much time with so many teams on this is like, what becomes those tipping points, you know, as we see folks, you know, going from ETL to EOT to kind of realizing those balances like, you know, if, if you're somebody listening to the podcast, like, what are those patterns you should start to be aware of? Or like, oh, like pain is around the corner. Or, like we need to actually figure out how we find a hybrid strategy to, to make sure that that we don't lose our, our efficiency as a team and as a company. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, maybe even more specifically around uh, patterns of ETL versus ELT um, or team patterns, or I guess? Yeah,
2: both like the... Like what? Do, what do you see as we start talking to teams where, like, can, I mean, to be really frank, the, the vast majority of people we talk to is they generally are, have come to us because they're feeling a pain, right? They, they felt the pain and they, you know, they went to the Google and they started asking the Google like, how do I do X, right? Or how do I alleviate pain Y? And so, what is that like? What are those common patterns that you see that they're already experiencing, and, and what's sort of their setup? And how do they get? Obviously, one way they they help get out of this, of course, with with us, because you know they're talking to us. But like, how have people found their way of navigating that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I would say there's there's maybe a couple different ways that I can try to bucket it. One is folks that have created homegrown pipelines, and so this might be Python scripts, it might be Spark jobs orchestrated with Airflow. Um, it's something that they've put together internally to solve some exact pain points as you were talking about, Sean, you know, maybe it's, we do want to publish a piece of content um, based on this analytics. Okay, great, let's, let's at least automate the report generation and the analytics. That doesn't seem so bad. You know, maybe we run the SQL query to unload it to this bucket, to then maybe run some Python scripts on it to maybe analyze it a little bit and uh, kind of publish it over here. So that's kind of the homegrown area that I'll call it. Then the next one is where we see folks who have fully embraced the ELT, And that's the, I'm going to try to just transform it as lightweight as possible in order to try to get it into the warehouse in a way that I can work with it in a warehouse. It turns out there's some nuance in those words I just said of as lightweight as possible and how it fits into that warehouse. Like, you know, for example, if you're working with a warehouse that doesn't necessarily have the best JSON support, then maybe you do a little bit of upfront translation to try to break that apart. And your ELT has become a little bit of an E little mini, let's not talk about it, hidden T, LT, Um, and uh, that kind of warehouse centric world in SQL queries. Uh, And then you typically need something to help you start transforming that data because it does come in very, very raw in that case. So for example, making page views into sessions, making an order fact table from the raw orders, things like this. And so then you might be doing some SQL and some tools to automate the SQL processing and materialization you know, whether it's something, again, homegrown, or maybe using something like a dbt or something like this. And then that's kind of the second world that I would say we see a lot of folks in. Uh, And then the third world is some hybrid approach of the first two that I just mentioned with some amount of partners or vendors mixed in there to help you um, facilitate those parts. So maybe it's still a homegrown scheduling system, but maybe you're trying to use, uh, you know, dbt to try to run the actual queries. Um, Or or maybe you're trying to use a, you know, a a bigger partner or a vendor um, to automate even more of it, but then there's still some homegrown side things that just do a couple webhooks on the side or something like it. And I'd say like the tipping points that we typically see here from these folks is that on the homegrown scripting side, oftentimes we see a lot of folks with just plain Python scripts or pandas or stuff like this. And they just outgrow it um, due to scale and our complexity. So either the amount of data that's being piped through that pipeline is too much and the scripts need to be upgraded to something like a Spark. And now you're really paying into the, the deep technical of the data engineering space or the one that people often forget about is the types of data. Grow in complexity. So it's one thing to say page view data comes from a thousand page views a day to now, you know, 10 million page views a day. It's another thing to say we have 250 different front end events being tracked how do we wrangle this and push it through each one might only be 10 events a day so it's not it's not the uh, volume of events that's crushing you it's the variety of events that's crushing you um so that's typically what we see starts breaking down in those kinds of pipelines and and i shouldn't say breaking down but dangers that lie that would require further investment i should say and then on the other side of it when we start getting into this elt world we typically see two breaking points there as well. Ah, I said breaking points again. We typically see two lurking issues there. Uh, One is the level of customization that's required in the EL um, starts becoming more complex. So for example, the -the out-of-the-box Salesforce adapter that you tried to use can't handle more than 50 custom fields and your business happens to have 150 of them. So now you're like, okay, wait, hang on. I need to write my own EL. And then you realize at some point, wait, hold on, I've just done ETL. Uh, And so that can be one breaking point there. Um, And then the other that we we start to see there is uh, more complex business use cases. So pushing into the data science, Leslie mentioned this earlier, like, "Ah, you know, I just want to work with that data. I don't care where it came from, but I need it in the way that I need it. Um, And that's not necessarily in a warehouse if you're trying to run a bunch of uh, machine learning algorithms on it. Um, You actually probably want it more in a data lake and stuff like that. Um, So now you end up with this paradigm where you've used maybe an out-of-the-box adapter, you've put it into a warehouse. Um, Maybe you're writing a bunch of SQL queries to transform it into a format that you want. But then you want to do even more with it. You want to run machine learning algorithms on it. And you're like, ah, okay, well, now maybe we need to get it out of the warehouse. Or maybe you try to use some warehouse solution that lets you run machine learning algorithms on it like you know like trying to run redshift through like a SageMaker or something like this or you end up actually wanting to create into more open formats and try to get it into a data lake so that you can then run clusters against it and things like this so I'd say that's the one that we often or the two different areas that we often see in that paradigm as well and then of course the third paradigm of mixing partners or vendors in interspersed and all of that same same sort of uh, trade-offs just maybe a little bit more out of your hands
2: as you encounter like a bunch of different implementations maybe a fun question hopefully not uh, not too controversial well maybe a little controversial what is one of the patterns that you see people having adopted that they regret the most like the thing that seemed like a really great idea at first and then you're then they're like wow we have to get out of this stat
1: yeah that's interesting you know on the one hand we've got we've got ones that are um, become quite proprietary. Uh, So they've invested quite a bit into like a proprietary um, ETL system. And uh, in order for them to do anything, it requires this huge upfront migration cost so that they can break out the code into just more basic like um, Python or Spark code or something like this. And now, now that they've invested years into it, it's like, okay, well, who's going to spend years Unwinding this and, and getting us out of this um, uh, vendor, um, so that's that's definitely one that we see it quite often. I don't know if it's the one that we see the most, but we definitely see the most sadness around it. Where you know it's just like, oh no, <laughs> like this is a really tough situation to be in, and uh, we don't feel really like, know how we're going to do about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel
2: like those are always like the interesting ones because you can then end up in these cycles, right, where you you lose that release early and often, often sort of benefit of, you find these teams then, right? And then they're like, oh my God, this is so painful. We can never morph this thing. We have to just build a new one from scratch. And then like that new one from scratch, oftentimes they're trying to do like the next gen of it, but that can then go take a year or two. And by the time that thing's live, oh my gosh, like it's already dated too. And you just end up in this like never ending cycle of seeing teams on um, versus I'm sort of like the way to just like chop it up and figure out how to ca- incrementally catch it up, which is yeah. probably less exciting, but but actually from a project perspective, far more de-risked and, and creates a, a lot more a pain alleviation faster. Mm-hmm.
1: And i say the same is true. It's, it's the same practices from software engineering just applied to data pipelines, because this is exactly what we would go through in um, con- the consulting world of it. Like, yes, you've got some legacy system, you know, maybe the programming languages from 20 years ago, and no, you know, we're getting difficulty finding people who can work in it. Um, the temptation is always, let's build it from fresh. Everybody loves Greenfield. Everybody loves uh, working on the latest and greatest. But yeah, the, those projects are, are always very, very difficult. Um, tend mm-hmm. to grow out of scope very quickly, um, tend to have a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, internal people systems that have to be solved around it. So more of a people problem sometimes than a, a systems thing. And, and a lot of times it makes a lot of sense to iterate your way um, out of these. You know, Can we replace one chunk of what this is doing? Can we start here? Um, can we see how that's working? And can we make decisions that allow us to, in the future, since everything is going to change forever, like this we know, allow us to make future type changes um, more malleable and easier to keep up with. Uh, So um, I think this is why we see such excitement around microservices. Call it a buzzword or call it the wrong choice for a lot of companies if you want, but the reason (laughs) there's a lot of um, genesis around it is because it's solving a lot of these, or let's say it's solving or it promises to solve a lot of these things, where you know, one of these services is getting pretty out of date. It's having a lot of trouble keeping up. Let's replace that one service without scrapping the whole system. Yeah.
2: It's funny because we used to always have the saying where like it's, I think it's a fool's errand to try and build product and build technology that has zero debt, right? Because you get diminishing returns on, on trying to make sure that your system never has debt. And so the, oftentimes when we think about the, the the benefits of microservices is we used to have the saying that um, debt compounds linearly across microservices and exponentially within a service. And so the bigger your service gets, the more complex it is, whereas you can keep that, that debt and that that sort of risk of um, of sort of future pain far more compound or far more, more compartmentalized if you have well-designed interfaces and, and, and a microservices model where you can that surface and as long as you can adhere to that same contract you can implement it differently and it it makes you more flexible as a team and it de-risks a lot and it's funny because when we think about this from a data engineering a data pipeline perspective we're like a solid five to ten years behind as a as a a field right of engineering where things aren't very modularized things aren't uh you know far more sort of malleable in the sense of I can write part of you know one microservice in python another microservice in java and they can still talk to each other right over gRPC or, or thrift right today data pipelines are, are far more like that equivalent of the monolithic binary uh that just the frankenstein that was just like constantly evolved and tacked onto over the course of like the last five
1: years yeah and uh, and to your point the interfaces are very low level, right? A lot of times the best we've done is um, I will write it to this S3 bucket on this path uh, at this time every day and and you can start your pipeline over there. And well, as we all know, there's a lot left to be desired there from an interface perspective uh, on, on doing that handoff point. What I am excited about, though, is this progression of taking these software engineering principles that a lot of the community has rallied around over the past 10 years and bringing that to data pipelines. So, you know, starting with earlier teams where it's like, oh yeah, the only test we run is in the production pipeline that checks the validity of the data. And if not, it aborts everything to now, you know, we're starting to see unit testing frameworks and ways to evaluate this code and CICD and a lot of these kind of principles is similar. And, and of course, including what you were talking about, modularization onto these pipelines.
0: Well, I'm going to cut us off there because we have to have something for the next time I force Sheil and Sean to join me on the podcast. (laughs) So thank you both. I appreciate your time and you will be hearing from them again because they will definitely be doing this again. We'll dive into some other topics. I want to hear... Uh, you know, Sean and I talked about it a little bit, but I want to hear from both Sean and Sheil and hear them bounce ideas off of each other of what the future looks like. So that'll be the next one that we have with these guys. So thank you both. Okay. Thank you for having us. There you have it folks, between his history actually building the data teams and being a data engineer, and now his work with a variety of companies to help with their data engineering efforts, I always, always, always learn something when I chat with S.H.I.E.L.D., and I hope you did as well. As always, you can visit us at ascend.io if you would like any other information or wanna reach out with feedback or questions you want us to talk through on the podcast or guest suggestions, we're open to all of that. we love to hear from you. Welcome to a new era of data engineering.